Welcome to Season 4 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership education, training, and development. Interested in keeping up with the leaders' conversations across the leadership discipline? Want to add more to your resource toolbox with practical strategies for teaching, learning, and program design without changing your routine? Well, this is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you don't never miss an episode. Welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And I'm Dan Jenkins, Chair and Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And we are both thrilled for this episode of the podcast. We're joined today by Dr. John Wergen. Welcome to the program, John. Thank you. So John and I met almost five years to the month. We are celebrating an anniversary with this episode. Um, I first met John during the application process when I interviewed uh, with John about the doctoral program at, at Antioch. Um, I enjoyed our conversation then and have loved getting to know and learn from you over the last five years. And so um, for this episode, I'd love to start out with uh, kind of a little bit about your background for those of us that have not benefited from your teaching. Um, can you share with us how you got started in leadership education? Uh, sure, Lauren. Uh, and uh, by the way, it's been a joy having you as a student as well. Uh, it's uh, truly, and I'm, and I'm grateful to be chairing your dissertation. It's on a wonderful topic. Anyway, um, yeah, I... Maybe it's because I, I have a career spending almost 50 years. I've been all over the place in terms of um, an academic career. Um, I started in the early 70s with a degree in educational psychology, working at um, a medical center in an educational development program. And so I got to know and learn a lot about things like clinical education, um, how do you uh, assess clinical performance, um, uh, what is a medical curriculum like and how can it be made better, um, and so forth. I went from there to um, a larger university-wide faculty development program at Virginia Commonwealth University, uh, and eventually became director of of that. So I began to sort of broaden my horizons and reach out to more than just professional education, all sectors. In uh, the early 90s, I was invited to go to Washington to, uh, as a fellow of the then American Association for Higher Education. And it was there that I developed an interest in higher education leadership, especially as it related to leadership at the departmental level. Uh, that resulted in a, in a book called uh, Departments That Work that I published about 20 years ago. And uh, for the next several years, I spent uh, a lot of time doing uh, research and writing and speaking around the country on matters of leadership and change and quality assessment. Uh, and in 1999, um, I went, uh, I was invited by Al Guskin and Laurie and Alexandra, the two pioneers of our Antioch PhD program, to join them as part of a design team to design the program that you're now in. Uh, and it was based upon the best principles of adult education, which had been what I had been teaching at VCU previously. So I 
started with that design team, uh, ended up joining the faculty full time in 2003, and I've been there ever since. Uh, one of the first things I had to do was to feel like I could be a credible faculty member in a leadership program. Because heretofore, I had not been part of any leadership studies program. Uh, I hadn't even taught a leadership course. I had just been mostly, mostly focused on higher education leadership. And so I asked my good friend uh, and colleague, uh, late colleague, Dick Kudo, what I should read. And he gave me a list of, you know, the length of your arm. He says, you need to read all of these things. And one of the books on this list uh, was Bernard Bass's Handbook of Leadership. Uh, you're both nodding, so you've seen this book. Yes, it's about we have. Three inches thick. You know, and I called it Moby Book. <laughs> and I'm going, Dick, you got to be kidding. You want me to read this whole thing? And he said, yes, you'll know everything you need to know about leadership. Uh, and then you can just wing it from there. <laughs> so I trusted his judgment. I read his, I read that book and a bunch of other things. Um, and so I've been winging it ever since. Uh, but one of the things that I discovered in reading this book um, that sort of drove my interest in ways that led up to the book on deep learning was that in that entire book, there was almost no mention at all. And I realized that this was an example of the silo effect in the academy, uh, where virtually all theory and research on leadership came from business school, whereas virtually all theory and research on learning and adult education, of course, came from ed schools. And there was very little interaction between the two. It was amazing. Um, now, there had been some uh, exceptions to that, one of which was uh, my uh, colleague, uh, the late colleague, Peter Vail, who in 1996, as you know, uh, uh, published uh, Learning as a Way of Being where he really explicitly talked about the importance of people being lifelong learners and how that related to being a good leader. But it really wasn't until the mid 2000s and later that you really started seeing much more research on um, and theorizing about the relationship between learning and leadership. <clears throat> and if you think about it now, it's they're they're in, completely inseparable. Like you don't see the conversation around leadership without some talk about learning or growth or development. And so no, it's, right. it's it's interesting that you can kind of pinpoint that shift of of when that that conversation happened. Yeah, and it and it began, I think, actually a long time ago with with the uh, research in the seventies by uh, Chris Argyris and Donald Schurn when they first started talking about organizational learning. Um, uh, and uh, of course, Ron Heifetz talked about adaptive learning in his book. Uh, but this was like how, how, how organizations somehow learn collectively. There really wasn't much emphasis on individual people and, uh, as leaders and the learning that they needed to do or the disposition 
rather that they needed to have towards learning too. Yeah, John, it's, it, no, it's really interesting that 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 you bring that up. You know, I one of the things that I just loved about about reading your your book, Deep Learning, was this this part of my background that I come from an ed school too. You know, my uh -huh. my my doctorate's in curriculum and instruction, so you know, cognitive issues in in instruction and ed psych and and all all this this background in curriculum design and and a psychology of learning that was just infused to me um, at a you know kind of. A, Kind of a young age and, and my my development as an educator where i was experimenting with so much of this and one of the my uh, major professor was jim eisen um who oh yeah oh so yeah sure. so i'm glad you're familiar with him so yeah so him and him and uh, his colleague bonwell they they coined the term active learning and i didn't realize it at the time that this was you know one of my faculty members and later became my major professor and just you know was throwing so much uh scholarship at me and introduced me to some so many of the thinkers that you you talk about in your book, um, you know, Brookfield and Vale and Mesero and, you know, and just thinking about this idea of transformative learning and transformative learning was so impactful to the way that I think about how we learn leadership, you know, through through experience, whether it be emotional experience or experiences we've had experiences we've had as a leader or as a follower. Um, and so much so that, you know, the first book that that I ever wrote, um, and we've had Kathy Guthrie on the show before, we called it transforming learning, you know, the role of leadership educators and this idea that we're facilitating this transformation. Um, I'm curious, what, how do you kind of ideate that or, or as, you, as you work through that and think about this fusion between leadership learning um, and the experiences, both as an organization, as a system and, you know, individual learners, like what about it is so important from a transformational perspective um, for for both, you know, the leaders or for the students of leadership as well as the leadership educators. Uh, Dan, I think well, the short answer is that, <laughs> is that we need to think about learning and leadership as a disposition. One of the limitations I I thought was uh, one of the limitations of transformative leadership uh, transformative learning theory. I thought was that there wasn't anything particularly proactive about it. You uh, engaged in prospective transformation, according to Mesro and others, when you were faced with a disorienting dilemma that you had to react to. And what I'm trying to suggest in the book is uh, that this is one way of leading to transformative learning, but it's not the only. You can also get to that space by uh, engaging in mindfulness. That is thinking and being very conscious of certain small disorientations that you may be experiencing just kind of under the surface. That once you elevate them to your consciousness, you can deal with those before they become big disorders have to promote a much larger response. So, that's one way to look at it. Another way is through uh, one of the chapters on aesthetic experience. Uh, and, and just as kind of a sidebar, this was probably the most interesting chapter for me because it required the most learning on my part. It, it, there is, it, as, you, as you probably know, Dan, there isn't a lot written about aesthetic experience and adult learning. There's some good stuff out there, but it's, it's not sort of central to how people study learning in adults. And 
what I discovered in, in reading all of this material was that aesthetic experience can be extremely powerful as a way to nudge people into this space that I call constructive disorientation, where you're encouraged to go just beyond your comfort zone and imagine another kind of reality that you can kind of try on for size. And there is nothing like art, the arts to yeah, put I you in a place to do that because it's safe, you know? You, you, you don't have to put yourself at risk to have an aesthetic experience. You can just let yourself go. Um, so that's kind of the core of the idea is, is, is that path to deep learning is actually an event, but it's a disposition. It's, a, it's as Peter Vail would say, it's a way of being that opens yourself up to more than just disorienting the limits, but through mindfulness and aesthetic, aesthetic experience, you can put yourself in that space to challenge how you see the world. Couldn't agree more. And I think about just the uh, impactfulness of you know meaning making and art in that process, both from the you know constructivist process and and the interpretivist you know constructivist process of you know whether we're creating some of our art through like a critical reflect, reflective process, or we're, you know, kind of analyzing whether it be the art of a situation, the art of a system, the, the art of actual art, you know, of, yeah. uh, to, to take it, to take it literally. And, um, and, you know, I think that's why some of the uh, teaching tools out of like the Center for Creative Leadership, for example, are just so, they're so transformational and, and so emotive in the way that they're that they're used both by facilitators and by by leadership learners because it gives them this it's, it's triggering different parts of the brain in order to respond to you know what do you mean by leadership what do you mean by followership how do you describe this conflict that you're having or this decision that you're trying to make or or what have you and and I and, and I I'm just such a huge fan of that both from you know my background is I minored in music and and some of those types of experiences and how much art meant to me but but also how it is such a profound component of of the leadership learning process and really really curious so I saw that you know Brookfield was was wrote the uh, you know the endorsement on the back of the book and he's someone who had so much influence on on my thinking because the idea of of critical thinking was something that just was I wanted to figure out how does what is the synthesis between critical thinking and being a leader? Like, do we, do we need to do this? You know, do we need to, to what we call, what I called, you know, lead critically, do we need to lead critically? And like, what does that mean? How do we apply critical thinking skills to like decisions about leadership and followership and all these different contexts that we find ourselves in and, and actually have an assignment that I've, it's one of the first assignments I ever created in one of my classes where I have students, there's a, the Thomas Wren text, uh, Leader's Companion, has a great chapter. It's short too, but students love, um, about critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And so I had students read that and I say, okay, well, Brookfield talks about thinking critically. And we, you know, we always tell you you have to read critically. But what does it mean to lead critically? Um, I, I'd be curious, and students have some great responses to that, but I'm curious, like, what would you say in response to that? Well, well, I'm laughing because uh, there's critical thinking uh, and reflection, um, a critical reflection, they're all words. Mm -hmm. A couple of distinctions, a big distinction between, I think, between reflection and critical reflection. You can reflect on what happened and say, well, maybe I need to do something differently. Or you can critically reflect on, say, um, an event that you wish had gone. And, and you, you don't, 
you could do more than just say, well, I could have go a little bit deeper and say, what was I assuming would happen in that space? Uh, how was I feeling going? What was I reacting to? How did that, how did the emotional reaction drive my behavior? Uh, what was going on with that may have contributed to that event being uh, less effective or, or whatever than it could have been? That, the, the critical reflection is going deep and examining your assumptions about what is true. And that's really hard to do. Um, the critical thinking is really easy when you're criticizing somebody else's thinking, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, as, as academics, that's what we're taught to do. We're taught to be able to, uh, to assess and appraise and critically analyze other people's research, and that's fine. It's a lot harder to turn the spotlight on to yourself uh, because as I write about in the book, there are all of these protections that we have put, including all of these cognitive defenses that, that, that turn into cognitive traps that we use to filter out things that we don't want to hear, things that we don't want to see. And it takes a real effort to dig down and admit that there that, that, that these filters sometimes. You know, I love that you shared that, especially because I, I think that was the intro into ITC theory, like meaning yes. to change. And exactly. so, right. So, I, man, I feel like I have like five things to say, but I don't have five things worth of time. Um, but it's okay. Um, so the first thing is. I love that you talked about the disorienting dilemma because after you introduced it in our program, I had heard it before when I was um, introduced to chaos theory and my mind was blown. I like, I went to Catholic school, so order is everything. And so you're now telling me I gotta have a catastrophe to learn about leadership. And I'm like, no, click through the slides. I'll memorize the theories. Like click through them. I, I will memorize these theories. And so you're now telling me my life's gotta fall apart in order for me to learn. and and. Uh, but I'm also glad that you paired it with the mindfulness part because that feels more peaceful yeah. and, and, and that's a, a safer space for me that releasing control and allowing what's happening and processing it and then leaning in from that space. So I, I'm, I'm now on the backside glad about the disorienting dilemma, but I remember when I first heard it, I was like, no, no, this, this, you know, and it was all kind of while you were doing your research on the book. And so now that I see it in print, I'm, I'm good. Um, okay, I, I'm glad. Whew, right. Dodge a bullet. <laughs> Um, so then the second part, though, I think is and, and I think this is where this is going to benefit students that are coming up now. So in K through 12 education, it's all about experiential learning. They do things with everything. And so me as a leadership educator, I can no longer just simply sit up there and say, read this article and we'll talk about it in class. Role play and, and things like that are becoming so crucial to our teaching experiences. And those are the things that students have to do more. Um, we did a role play in my um, communicating leadership or my leading groups and team building class where we talked about conflict. And one of my students said, he, he messed up kind of in his, his role play. And he said, but I wouldn't respond like that in real life. And I was like, are you sure? Because, you know, you responded that way naturally. And so we had this really good discussion that I think was more meaningful than me clicking through 
slides about conflict and the researchers and the texts. And I think it's really marrying both of those as, as educators. Um, yeah. And then the last piece and the ITC piece, immunity to change theory is, is super important. Um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about how you got into that space and then kind of how it informed your work for this book. Sure. Well, every once in a while, a book comes along that I find transformative. That, you know, to my own way of thinking. And uh, Keegan O'Leahy's book, which came out in 2000 um, on immunity to change, it, it actually they had introduced it several years earlier, but this was their big kind of salvo uh, on the topic. Uh, I call it transformative because it made me honestly rethink all of the consulting work that I had done over where I drop into a campus uh, talk about quality, lead discussion groups and workshops on how you can improve quality in your department. And we did uh, the usual kind of force field analysis, you know, where what are the forces driving quality? What are the forces inhibiting quality? And how can we reduce or minimize or weaken the forces that uh, keep us from being the kind of quality department we want to be? And then the action plans and all of that stuff and lead them through all of those exercises. And then of course I'd leave with these action plans left behind. And I'd follow up months or year or so. And guess what? Nothing had happened. And I'm going, well, why am I doing this? <laughs> you know, maybe it's just not a good idea to do sessions like this as a consultant because you're not there to you know, see things. And then, of course, ITC explains it. It isn't just that people or organizations don't want to change. They do. They did. It isn't that they can't identify what they needed to do to accomplish that change, because they did. What we didn't do was identify what Keegan and Leahy called competing commitment. And these are things values and behaviors that you're also committed that get in the way of accomplishing your improvement goal. And until you uh, surface these competing commitments, which may be subconscious, in fact, they probably are subconscious, you're not even aware of uh, And until you surface those competing commitments, acknowledge them, and then begin to test their validity, are you then able to create an atmosphere for change. And what I, what I really like about that whole ITC approach is that it fits in so well with deep learning. What yeah. it does is it forces you to examine assumptions about, about your own attitudes, behavior, and say, what are, you, what, what, is, what, what are you also committed to doing that is keeping you? Uh, the perfect example is say departments that uh, have a, a, an honest of creating a much more ethnically diverse. It's a goal that they're serious about. It isn't just because they're following some administrative mandate. They think this is important. Why do so few academic departments actually do it? Well, consider the competing commitments. One, com one competing commitment is we are committed to hiring faculty from the from the top tier, you know, we are committed to maintaining quality in ways that 
that um, will, will be reflected primarily in, in candidates who can come to us with an already well-defined research agenda and have a postdoc from places like Harvard. And, and, and other, you can imagine what some of these other competing commitments might be. And so at the end of the day, these competing, competing commitments can take over and, and you end up continuing a pattern of hiring predominantly white faculty uh, because they have the paper credential um, that uh, faculty of color may not have, even though at the end of the day, they're likely to contribute just as much, if not more, to the quality of the department than these other people. Yeah, it's like looking at a, an iceberg and just seeing the, the part that's above water and not recognizing all of the, the large mass underneath that yeah. is also contributing to to that exactly. space. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember when so I uh, w did the training in Seattle, the three or four day immersive experience, and I had a, a similar experience. I walked out and was like, man, I what what have I been doing these last <laughs> few, you know, and, and, and the interesting part and where I struggled a little bit with the 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 training was that it was really personal like you couldn't blame anybody else for anything that happened and it, i think in coupling it with mindfulness it makes sense it's kind of like what can i control that's within my sphere and you know what do mm -hmm. i but that that deep dive into kind of what else is holding you back was a, a hard but valuable thing to get to because yeah. then once you surface it it almost shifts your focus from what you thought was the problem to something completely different that that wasn't even on your radar before and i feel like that transformation allows you to then make some meaningful progress in the work that you're doing so yes it makes indeed. sense that it, it kind of goes hand in hand with the book as well mm -hmm. john I'm, I'm curious as you, you you talk about some of these you know this disorienting moments and this idea of juggling these these multiple commitments that we have and and you speak and you've you've talked about podcast already about high fits and you know adaptive learning and as we think about adaptive adaptive leadership and this idea of objective and subjective reframing and going back to your point about how those definitely parallel you know reflection and critical reflection are you uh reflecting on or analyzing something that others did decisions that others made or are you analyzing or reflecting on decisions that perhaps you have made and you know the the book is is very timely particularly in how you open up the a lot of the ideas early early on with thinking about from a global global landscape um, and our worldviews and how the media influences how we think what we think and that we're reinforced by by what we think and how we think because of algorithms you know and oh, there's yeah. plenty of documentaries and things that have you know kind of brought a lot of this to light zuckerberg um you know zuckerberg saying yeah hey we messed up during the 2016 uh, election by by selling these these ad spots to different countries to display different political points of view and and whatnot I, what I, what i'm curious from from your point of view is you know how critical is it now for us to help kind of unlearn some of these ways that we are forming our own ideas and this idea of this immunity to change. Like what, what can we take from what you wrote and what we can learn from, from some of your, your teachings from a leadership educator perspective? Like how do we facilitate this? Un how do <laughs> I can't believe I'm asking this question. How do we facilitate unlearning 
um, with respect to you know these these competing worldviews, but being open to change and say, you know what, while this was while I while I'm consuming this information and agreeing with it and being reinforced, like how do I then be okay with opening up those open up those bridges again and and starting to to reach across the aisle and collaborate again? It's it's a great question, Dan, and uh, actually it's 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 what drove me to write the book. I was um, really troubled by, uh, of course, the events of 2016 and thereafter. Um, particularly the research that it was coming out just about uh, that, uh, for example, from the Rand Corporation uh, that talked about what they call truth decay, which I thought was a clever, uh, clever name for something that is really insidious, which is, as you were saying, that's the growth of social media, the uh, growth of alternative facts, fake news, and so forth. This just, of course, as you said, just feeds into confirmation bias and, and belief persistence, uh, creates even a more tribalistic society than before. Uh, and this disturbs me a lot. And at the same time, um, I, had to, I had gathered an entire library of books on the topic, like, uh, let me, they have very interesting titles, like uh, Blunder, uh, The Believing Brain, Predictably Irrational, The Knowledge Illusion, um, uh, Denying to the Grave, which is kind of my personal favorite. <laughs> I was just thinking about that book because I remember when you assigned it, I was like, this is a weird title for us to be reading, but okay. All right. Yeah. We're talking about death and leadership. It's, it's, it's about how people get trapped um, and how it isn't just an individual problem. As we've seen, it's a huge societal problem, as you said. Um, and so what, what drove me to begin thinking about the book was and this goes back to the to the at psych training I had, which you can appreciate, Dan. I'm going, surely there's something we can do about this. We are not doomed to uh, live in a society uh, that becomes ever more tribalistic. People become dissociated from one another, and we're all living in bubbles where we agree with everyone in the bubble, and we don't just disagree with people outside the bubble. We think they're wrong or evil. They're the other, and it's they're, they're to be feared. Can't it doesn't have to be that way, and and that's what that's what drove me to do the research that ended up being the book. Uh, so that's where it came from. Now, in terms of okay, so what do we do? <laughs> uh, part of I'll, I'll give you one thing, and that is to uh, develop a much fuller understanding about not only the importance of discourse with other people, but ways in which that discourse can be facilitated. And to me, the key to all of that is to cultivate the ability to empathize. This is not a new idea. In fact, there, 
frankly, there's nothing in the book that's a particularly new idea. Uh, it's, 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 it's old ideas in put together in a perhaps a different way. And, and the need to cultivate empathy in our relationships with other people is, I think, the single most important Thing we can do as a place to be. And as I empathize, as I empathize, as I emphasize, empathy is does not mean that you agree with someone, does not mean that you sympathize with someone, uh, it doesn't even mean that you like what that other person is saying. That is not what empathy is all about. And that's a, that is a distinction that I think sometimes it's, I think in order to empathize, we have to try to understand, we just don't do that. At, at, and so we need to be, we need to put ourselves maybe in small steps in spaces where we are together with people who different, maybe even radically notions about who we are as a society, what our most important values are. And I think before we try to find common ground, which is often the suggestion that we move to, I think there needs to be a previous step, and that is to work hard at understanding the other. Where does this come from? How does what what is what is the what is the world that other people are that is different from the world? And, right. and I think only that, only by doing that, and I don't mean in a superficial way. I don't mean by having a conversation with someone and saying, "Okay, I hear what you're saying," but no, 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 no. You have to really try to get inside the other. Yeah, and, and, it's, and, and, it, and it's only then are you going to find what will eventually be some common. Yeah, and being and okay. And you work from there. Yeah, and being okay to, to sit with that idea and, and not, you know, and, and no buts about it, right? You know, and, <laughs> no and, and, buts and, about it, exactly. <laughs> and be able to. And it, is, it is so hard to do. For sure. I, I, I mean, it is incredibly hard to do. I, I speak from experience. I mean, uh, I have, I had a neighbor who uh, was as different from the way I saw things as two people could possibly. It's, I was doing what I wrote in the book not to do, <laughs> which, which was to argue the facts, you know, uh, and I could, there's this voice on my shoulder telling me, John, uh, this is, you're, you're doing it again, which is, uh, as the other person is speaking, you're not really listening, you're not really understanding, you're formulating a response to what they are saying so that you have it ready when they finish talking. And goes without saying, that doesn't get us anywhere. And in fact, the research indicates when people engage in dialogue, if you can call it that, of that sort, uh, the, uh, in, instead of finding ways of coming together, you get further apart. Right. Because the, not... more you, the more you formulate your own argument, the surer you are of its validity, and the surer you become of the, uh, of the wrongness of the other person's and that's not humble and that's certainly not empathetic and so as i as i think about that that exchange that you shared it, it brings me back so we just had doctors Chris story and matt johnson on the podcast they were talking about uh, evidence-based practices and and their new directions issue and um one of the chapters we it really kind of interrogated this idea of 
using discussion as a signature pedagogy in leadership education. We talk a lot. We just serving leadership educators. Like we use that pedagogy more than anything else in leadership learning, whether it's face-to-face, online, hybrid, you, you name it. But it's not just about having conversations. It's about how we have these conversations and how we have these conversations with diverse others. And I think that as leadership educators, it's it's how do we how do we uh, supercharge that ability to facilitate these conversations to get to exactly what you're talking about? How do we, it's not just emotional intelligence, but that's part of it, but how do we infuse empathy and ethics and social justice and some of these other ideas into our leadership learning environment so that when we're having the, the, you know, the beauty and the benefit of having conversations with diverse others and diverse worldviews in diversity in all its forms, that we're actually moving the needle a little bit. And not just, as you said, just waiting for my opportunity to share some more facts. It's not about the facts. It's about learning not about, about others. Not about the facts. You know, I think I have a theory on this and I'm going to save it for after I'm gra- I've graduated. Um, but I think <laughs> I, I no, I do. So so one of the things that um, gets one of the things that frustrates me is when you're having this conversation and someone is openly expressing some kind of ism, whether it's racism, sexism, ableism. And, and I think what we don't do enough is acknowledge the emotion before we jump into empathy and understanding. And I think why people get so mad is it's you're trying to be realistic and rational when you're experiencing all of these emotion. And I don't know that we talk enough about emotion to start, meaning if if someone like in in the racism conversation, I always think you're challenging someone's beliefs and people aren't going to let that go very easily. And so if there's some way for you to first just acknowledge their emotions or even just let them feel their emotions, before mm-hmm. you jump into empathizing and understanding, you may have a better chance at your conversation. Like with my students, whenever they you know, request like, they're like, I'm sick or someone died, the first thing I do is acknowledge their emotions. Like, how are you doing? Are you okay? Like, how is this making you feel? And then I jump into, well, there's a due and a close date. The due date is this date, the close date is this sure. date. And so if you need, you have the extra time. And I don't know how they feel about it, but I do know overwhelmingly the response is like, you know, kind of like, thank you for like saying something because I think we get so kind of transactional, like we get so back and forth. And I just I just feel like it's that emotional piece that is missing. Um, I read this book by Michael Singer, and he talks about that when when you're in this heated debate, like you should physically lean back and allow the emotional energy to pass and then lean in and you're better able to deal with it. And so once I'm done my dissertation, I'm going to read some more and do some more work on that because that is not in my dissertation anywhere. But I think it pairs really well with that empathy piece that you talk about, like, you know, and thinking I would have liked to see, though, your beef with your neighbor. I think that might have been really interesting. I don't know. I don't I don't I don't think you would have learned much from it, Lauren, except maybe, okay, this is what you're not supposed to do. <laughs> well, um, it's so easy. It's so easy to fall into. And, you know, and, and it's because of, of what I think you just said. The emotion takes over. And uh, every, every single core belief is based on emotion because it's part of who we are. Who it's, it's part of how we see our own. And it is extremely threatening to see these core beliefs under attack, because that's how it's experienced. And 
and while while that is happening, I think you're absolutely right. It's uh, you need you need to acknowledge that and let it flow. Let's just just let it flow out. Yes, and and I think that's a great place to pause this conversation. I hate to say end because I feel like we could talk to you forever, but we are limited in our our time. Um, we just want to really quickly say thank you so much for stopping by and um, sharing. Uh, information about yourself and about your book and we wish you well uh this uh, i hate to say upcoming semester because you're semi-retired so that whole structure is probably out the window it is <laughs> so maybe we'll say <laughs> something good luck. i don't miss <laughs> right right oh as as professors we want to be in that space as well right dan yeah right that's right yeah thank you thank you so much again john for for joining us and uh, that wraps up this episode of the Leadership Educator Podcast. And um, yeah, please be well. And um, and folks, please uh, please take a look at uh, at some of John's books, and we'll definitely put uh, information on where to find them in the show notes. Thanks again, John. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thoroughly enjoyed it. We would love for you to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. That's Dr. Underscore Leadership, and uh, Lauren is at M R S L A U R J B. That's Mrs. Laura J B. Um, and you can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. And we also encourage you to subscribe and rate us five stars. As the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd also like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The Support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in New Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matthew White, trumpeter, composer, and educator. And he's currently an associate professor of trumpet, coordinator of jazz and commercial music, and director of ensembles at Coastal Carolina University. You can check him out at www.mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thanks so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, thank you to the Association of Leadership Educators. Check out what ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. We hope you'll listen to our next episode wherever you get your podcasts.